Have you ever felt dead on your feet? Dead tired, like a walking corpse? What if, after a good night's sleep, you still felt dead? Not tired anymore, just dead, empty, no longer alive. You try to tell anyone who will listen that you're dead, but they just tell you you're crazy. Nothing matters anymore. Queue up for the funeral, strangers, because it's time to give yourself the TLC you need and just R.I.P. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who is often dead tired, but so far as I know, is still alive and kicking. This week, we'll meet a handful of people who woke up one morning to discover they were dead. No amount of common sense would convince them otherwise. Now, I'm not just talking about a goth existential crisis here. I am talking about people who literally believe themselves to be deceased. And the condition that befalls them is called Cotard syndrome. Just a quick note before we jump in. This episode touches on discussions of depression and suicide. So please take care if those are triggers for you. In the 1870s, Parisian neurosurgeon and psychiatrist Jules Cotard received a visit from a 43-year-old patient he would come to call Mademoiselle X. Mademoiselle X had been a patient at the Vanve Asylum just outside Paris. What she was initially admitted to the hospital for, I don't know, and it bears mentioning that back in the old days, it seems, people were not only admitted to psychiatric hospitals for relatively minor things, can we say hysteria, folks? But also, people regularly spent many years in psychiatric hospitals, sometimes their entire adult lives. She probably told someone she never wanted to marry, and they were like, this bitch is crazy, and had her committed. At any rate, Mademoiselle X told Dr. Cotard that she believed she had no insides at all. She was just skin and bones. No brain, no guts, no nerves, no heart. She also didn't believe in God or the devil, which I guess in the late 19th century meant you were certifiable. And she believed that though she was effectively dead, she was also immortal. The only way she could be killed was to be burned in a fire. Dr. Cotard was naturally like, the fuck? And set about trying to find a previous case of someone reporting similar symptoms. And he did. In 1788, a Swiss scientist named Charles Bonnet reported treating an elderly woman who said she'd felt a draft and was suddenly paralyzed on one side of her body. The paralysis passed, but left in its place the pervasive belief that she had died. She told her family to dress her in whatever the customary corpse outfit was and place her in a coffin so they could properly mourn her. Apparently, her family granted her wish, which begs two questions. One, why would you put your living family member in a coffin? I don't care if they think they're dead. Clearly they aren't. Take them to a doctor immediately. And B, did they just have a spare coffin lying around? After she fell asleep, they moved her to her bed. There's no mention of how she reacted when she awoke in the morning, but I imagine she wasn't pleased. She was eventually treated with a powder made of precious stones and opium, and her symptoms eased. And look, I will admit that I own a small collection of crystals. I'm not 100% convinced they do whatever magic they're purported to do, but, you know, maybe they do, so it can't hurt. And also, they're pretty to look at. 
And I'm all for alternative medicines, but I'm pretty sure that ingesting crushed up diamonds or whatever isn't gonna do shit for you, except maybe make you constipated. The opium, on the other hand, I'll go out on a limb and say it was the opium that eased her symptoms, or at the very least made it so she didn't care one way or the other if she was dead or alive. After studying this and a small handful of other similar cases, Dr. Cotard concluded that his patient, Mademoiselle X, had been suffering from a condition he called hypochondriacal delirium, which he said was characterized by, quote, anxious melancholia, condemnation of ideas, insensitivity to pain, negation delusion of the organs, and immortality delusion, end quote. Hypochondriacal delirium would be renamed Cotard syndrome after the doctor's death in 1889. Mademoiselle X refused to eat, believing she didn't need to because she had no organs and was immortal anyway. Needless to say, she died of starvation. Now, chances are you've never met anyone who suffers from Cotard syndrome. It is an exceedingly rare condition. No one knows the exact number of cases, but it's estimated that there are only about 200 cases worldwide currently, according to everyone's favorite diagnostic tool, WebMD. Because of how rare it is, not too much is known about it. It's kind of hard to study something that so few people experience. But just because so few people have it doesn't mean it's not real. Dr. Jesus Ramirez Bermudez of the National Institute of Neurology and Neurosurgery of Mexico told the Washington Post in 2015 that patients with cotards do truly experience all kinds of suffering. Apparently, believing one is dead can come, not surprisingly, with feelings of anxiety, depression, and despair. Ironically, it can also lead to suicidal ideation. Dr. Ramirez Bermudez said that occasionally patients who present with cotards are misdiagnosed with schizophrenia, which makes sense if you consider how rare cotards actually is. A psychiatrist meeting a patient who believes they are dead or have no insides could definitely seem to be suffering from paranoid delusions brought on by schizophrenia. Dr. Ramirez Bermudez has treated at least 14 people suffering from cotards in his 27-plus year career. I'd like to point out that 14 seems like a very low number, but when you consider that it probably accounts for 7% of cotard patients worldwide, it puts that number into perspective. I would imagine there are very few doctors who treat it. It's one of those things that only Dr. House would think of, you know? Speaking of Dr. House, Cotards has only rarely shown up in popular culture, and when it has, it's usually grossly mischaracterized. Like on the show Hannibal, where the woman with Cotard syndrome also had prosopagnosia, that thing where you can't recognize faces, so she gets paranoid and ends up killing someone. I don't know why they decided Cotards would make someone violent. It doesn't seem to do that in real life. I guess it made for better television. Unfortunately, it only helped to stigmatize the condition. The only other scripted American show that I could find that referenced Cotards was an episode of Scrubs in which a guy walks around wishing out loud he'd done things differently when he was alive, and Zach Braff keeps yelling at him. For the last time, Jerry, you're not dead, okay? Now go back to your room. Side note, Colin Farrell is also in that episode, so I give it a score of five yummies. Anyway. Fun-loving hospital sitcoms aside, what is it like to be that person insisting the impossible? To ponder that, let's meet a few people from this century who actually came down with cotards. 
and lived to tell the tale. In 2013, writer Esme Weijin Wang published a personal essay on the toast called Perdition Days on Experiencing Psychosis that began with this passage. Let's note that I write this while experiencing psychosis, and that much of this has been written during a strain of psychosis known as Cotard's Delusion, in which the patient believes that she is dead. What the writer's confused state means to either of us is not beside the point, because it is the point. The point is that I am in here somewhere, cogito ergo sum. And can I just say that as a writer who suffers with chronic depression and anxiety, the fact that Wong was able to write anything in the midst of this episode is remarkable. It's hard enough to write when you feel like you'd rather be dead. I can't imagine how hard it is to write when you literally feel like you actually are dead. Then again, I suppose the mark of a true writer is that you write no matter what, like a compulsion. Anyway, by this point, Wong had already been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and had experienced a few other psychotic episodes in which her life would be taken over by various delusions. But on November 5th, 2013, she woke her husband up and announced that she was dead. She had come to the realization that a month earlier, when she had a series of fainting spells while on a long flight, she had, in fact, died. Doctors had been unable to find a reason for the fainting. She told her husband that he was dead, too, as was their dog Daphne, both of whom seemed wholly unaware of their status as formerly alive beings. At first, Wong was overjoyed with this revelation. She wrote, I felt buoyant at the belief that I was getting a second chance in some kind of afterlife. It caused me to be kinder, to be more generous. I wasn't irritated by problems with computer downloads. I was sweet to telemarketers. It was true that I was dead, but I believed it made sense to play act normalcy, or rather, an improved version of normalcy because of the additional belief that I was in an afterlife. According to the logic of my delusion, this afterlife was given to me because I hadn't done enough to show compassion in my real life. And though I was now dead, my death was also an optimistic opportunity. Unfortunately, this optimism only lasted a day before Wang fell into despair. As I mentioned earlier, Cotard's usually leads to feelings of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation, which makes sense because even if, at first, one feels a sense of optimism at being dead, eventually one is bound to end up feeling like nothing matters. For those of us who have experienced depression, a common thought is that we're going to die anyway, so what's the point of anything? So if you believe you're already dead, honestly, why bother? And that is indeed what happened to Wang. I was doomed to wander forever in a world that was not mine, in a body that was not mine. I was doomed to be surrounded by creatures and so-called people that mimicked the lovely world that I'd once known, but were now fictions and could evoke no emotion in me. I spent much of my time in catatonic psychosis, 
a form of agitation characterized by overactive movement or no movement at all. And I lay in my bed feeling psychic agony, more excruciating than any personal experience of physical pain. Her doctors wouldn't up her antipsychotic meds because of the side effects and instead recommended cognitive behavioral therapy. But, Wong wrote, But at that appointment, I was convinced that I was dead. And I didn't see how a technique built upon adjusting beliefs could help me extract myself from that conviction. Any kind of therapy, in fact, felt to me like suggesting that I sit down and meditate in a burning building. Now, I don't know about you, stranger, but I find it nearly impossible to wrap my head around how this works, exactly. Please understand, I'm not doubting anyone's lived experience here. I believe that Wong truly believed that she was dead. But how she rationalized that her doctors didn't agree that she was, in fact, dead, I don't know. It seems that when one is in the grips of a powerful delusion, there are a lot of mental gymnastics that go into filling in any gaps in the inevitable cognitive dissonance between reality and delusion. So eventually Wong stopped eating, because why bother eating if you're dead? To which I would answer, because food. Like, for me, often the question of why bother living is because food. Though I will admit I recently lost 10 pounds during a major depressive episode because in that dark state, even food held no allure. It's one of the ways you know I'm seriously depressed. I stop being interested in eating. But I would hope that if I already thought I was dead and any body image issues I have would go away... I wouldn't have to worry about trans fats or partially hydrogenated whatever or problematic companies like Nestle or Unilever because they were all phantoms in this illusionary world I was not living in anyway. I'd be like, fuck it, let's eat. But not Wong. She wrote, I could not summon the motivation to do anything. I would not eat. I often would not move. I would not attempt to read or answer an email or have a conversation because there is no point to doing anything when in perdition. Instead, there is only horror and a physical agitation that refuses to manifest physically for lack of motivation. Wang lost 40 pounds in a matter of a few weeks. She would sometimes brush her teeth and only very occasionally bathe, but would literally feel insane doing these things. She never considered suicide because she was sure, being already dead, that killing herself would land her back where she already was. Or, as she wrote, To a deeper, unfathomably worse circle of hell. Wong would ask her husband to tell her about things that were real in an effort to feel more tethered to reality. He would tell her about their house and the furniture around them, where it came from, where they bought it, and about their neighborhood and politics, which, honestly, if you're trying to prevent me from going insane, please don't ever mention politics. He told her that when people die, we bury them and you don't see them anymore. He said, quote, that's what happened to Grandpa this year. I don't see him anymore, but I see you, end quote. 
But rationalizing didn't help. Nothing helped. Until some months later, without knowing the exact moment it happened, Wong realized she was no longer suffering from Cotard syndrome. In a dark twist of irony, it seems, she only realized it when she was undergoing tests for some other ailment that they thought might have been cancer, and she found she was afraid. While she found herself hoping for negative test results, she recognized that hope was something that had been so utterly absent when she was convinced she was dead. She wrote, I was conscious enough to know that there is no hope of even death in perdition, only more of the same awful suffering. It stands apart from loss, injury, or perhaps even grief, all of which are terrible, and yet are still beautiful to the dead woman who sees them as remarkably human and alive. We'll include a link to Wang's piece detailing her whole journey in our show notes so you can read it. I highly recommend it. For Wang, this belief, no, knowledge, that she was dead was predicated by another psychological disorder over which she had no control. Our next case of Cotard's had a more external reason for its onset, in that the sufferer may have unwittingly caused the strange and incomprehensible condition while trying to liberate himself from a different existential quandary and the pain associated with it. In 2004, former water contractor, don't ask me what the hell a water contractor is, Graham Harrison from Exeter, Devon in the UK, woke up to discover he was, in fact, dead. Eight months earlier, he had attempted to kill himself by bringing an electrical appliance into the bathtub. Whether or not his suicidal depression had eased at all in the following eight months, I don't know. But there he was, eight months later, convinced he had killed himself and had been dead ever since. In an interview for NewScientist.com, he told journalist Helen Thompson, It's really hard to explain. I just felt like my brain didn't really exist anymore. I kept on telling the doctors that the tablets weren't going to do me any good because I didn't have a brain. I'd fried it in the bath. Graham's doctors tried in vain to convince him that he was alive, but he said, I just got annoyed. I didn't know how I could speak or do anything with no brain, but as far as I was concerned, I hadn't got one. He lost pleasure in everything. Anything he once enjoyed did nothing for him anymore. He no longer enjoyed cigarettes, which, you know, is actually a big plus. But he also no longer had a sense of taste or smell, so food brought him no pleasure either. I have a friend who lost his sense of smell and taste permanently from a head injury, and I just... It's honestly the saddest thing I can imagine. And I held my mother's hand as she died. That was a joke. Calm down. It's okay. We're all gonna be okay. I mean... <laughs> We're definitely not going to be okay, but I was just kidding that not being able to taste things is sadder than my mom dying. Moving on. But even if Graham could taste food, he said, It was no point in eating because I was dead. It was a waste of time speaking as I never had anything to say. I didn't even really have any thoughts. Everything was meaningless. Graham was put in touch with a couple of top-notch neurologists to see if anything could be done for him. 
Dr. Adam Zeman of the University of Exeter believed that Grams-Cotard syndrome was a metaphor for his extreme depression, which is a pretty poetic diagnosis for a doctor to make. Indeed, deep depression can make you feel like you're in limbo between life and death, but it's scary to think that your brain can manifest an illness in response to another illness already happening in your brain, you know? Graham became the first person with Cotards to have a PET scan done to see what, if anything, was actually going on in his brain that might explain why he thought he was dead. Neurologist Dr. Stephen Lorries of the University of League in Belgium said, I've been analyzing PET scans for 15 years, and I've never seen anyone who was on his feet, who was interacting with people, with such an abnormal scan result. Graham's brain function resembles that of someone during anesthesia or sleep. Seeing this pattern in someone who is awake is quite unique to my knowledge. In fact, parts of Graham's brain looked like they were in a complete vegetative state. According to journalist Helen Thompson, quote, some of these areas form part of what is known as the default mode network, a complex system of activity thought to be vital to core consciousness and our theory of mind. This network is responsible for our ability to recollect the past, to think about ourselves, to create a sense of self, and it allows us to realize that we are the agent responsible for an action, end quote. Dr. Zeman pointed out that some of what they were seeing on the scan could have been a result of his antidepressants. And look, I'm no top-level neurologist, but are you trying to tell me that antidepressants can turn areas of your brain into vegetables? That, that doesn't sound good, Bob. Is that why sometimes I feel like my brain is filled with mashed potatoes? And is that really the trade-off for not being deeply depressed? Honestly, in my case, yes. Yes, it is. Graham's teeth eventually turned black on account of he had stopped brushing his teeth on account of he was dead, so why bother? When his teeth rotted, he took it as confirmation that he was dead, which doesn't entirely make sense seeing as most skeletons still have their teeth, but one can hardly expect someone in this condition to be thinking rationally. Graham became so preoccupied with the notion that he was dead that he began hanging around the local cemetery so much the police had to come get him and bring him home. He eventually got better with meds and therapy and said, I don't feel that brain dead anymore. Things just feel a bit bizarre sometimes. I'm not afraid of death, but that's not to do with what happened. We're all going to die sometime. I'm just lucky to be alive now. What's interesting about that statement is the word now. Did he mean now as in not like before when I was dead? Or did he mean now like I just feel lucky to be alive now whereas before I didn't care? Whatever the case may be, hopefully his transition back to life, as it were, came with some abatement of his depression. Nothing like thinking you're dead only to realize you're alive and still wish you were dead. I joke because, as I've said before on this podcast, if I didn't joke, I would crawl under the covers and never come out. But obviously, believing you're dead and stuck in some kind of awful purgatory is a terrifying experience. And the stigma around it probably isn't helped by the portrayal in Hannibal, for instance, or the title of the 2015 Washington Post article, which was, quote, zombie disease makes people think they have died, end quote. To their credit, the Washington Post changed the title and took out the reference to zombies. 
Besides, everyone knows that zombies eat brains, whereas it seems people with Cotard syndrome generally don't see the point in eating anything at all. So what is it that causes a tiny fraction of people to suddenly think they've died and are still somehow walking amongst the living, or at least walking around in some kind of purgatory that looks an awful lot like the world they used to be alive in? At this point, it's still pretty hard to say what causes Cotard syndrome because the sample group to study is so tiny, and so far there haven't been enough people to do brain scans on to get a consistent answer. Also, it's not like they can replicate this in, like, rats or whatever. Like, even if they could mimic the brain functioning they found in Cotard patients in a rat's brain, it's not like they could then take a tiny microphone and ask the rat to report whether they think they're dead or not, you know? And even if they could, they'd be like, well, Bob, I don't know what it means to be alive to begin with. I don't have a concept of self, but thank you so much for bringing it up. While you're at it, why don't you give me a paper cut and pour lemon juice on it? Delusions, which are different from hallucinations in that they are beliefs rather than visions or sounds that aren't actually there, are associated with a wide range of neuropsychological disorders, including dementia, schizophrenia, Parkinson's, and brain injury. To be clear, a hallucination would be a stranger who isn't actually there standing in your room. That isn't a ghost, obviously. A delusion would be looking in the mirror and seeing a stranger looking back at you. Speaking of seeing a stranger looking at you in the mirror, or standing in your room for that matter, there is a syndrome called Capgras syndrome in which you suddenly believe someone you love is an imposter. They look just like your loved one, but you're deluded into thinking and on a personal level knowing otherwise. Capgra has been studied more than Cotard's because it's more common, and while it's not the same ailment, researchers have drawn on the findings of Capgra studies to glean what might be happening in the brains of people with Cotard's. First of all, they found that Capgra can appear in people who have had brain injury, who also haven't been previously diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder. I'm no scientist, but this probably means that psychiatric disorders either can cause brain damage or maybe come from pre-existing brain damage. Incidentally, I knew someone who had brain damage from a major car accident, and he was convinced the hospital he was convalescing in was a cruise ship, and also that his wife was having an affair with his nurse, who was, of course, he thought, one of the cruise ship employees. The damaged brain functioning in Capgra patients leads to decreased emotions when seeing someone or something they love, and then the brain tries to compensate for the lack of feeling toward the person the patient knew they should love or did love not long before by rationalizing that it's because the person or thing is an imposter. According to a 2015 Washington Post article about Cotards and, by extension, Capgra, Tragically, one boy who was suffering from Capgras syndrome was convinced his father was a robot and beheaded him trying to find the microchips. The brain is a wild place, folks. It turns out the studies they've done on a very few cases of Cotard syndrome patients show the same kind of damage to the same places in the brain as Capgras. 
According to an article from 2022 in Medical News Today, a 2018 study of only 12 people with Cotard syndrome found, quote, four people had changes in the frontal lobe of the brain, four had a generalized loss in brain volume, five showed signs of decreased blood flow in some areas of the brain, and seven had lesions on at least one side of the brain, end quote. However, most people with these same brain conditions will never develop Cotard syndrome, so scientists are still in the dark as to what exactly might trigger it. The article explains that the cause could be, quote, a combination of biological, psychological, social, and environmental factors, end quote. That said, scientists have found several conditions that seem to increase the risk of developing cotards, including epilepsy, dementia, or stroke, as well as being under the influence of certain drugs or having brain damage from drug misuse, psychiatric conditions such as schizophrenia, or, terrifyingly enough, some infections, especially infections of the brain. And while we're on the topic of infections, in 2013, researchers found a possible correlation between certain herpes medications and Cotard syndrome. What they found was that about 1% of people who had used acyclovir or Zovirax experienced psychiatric side effects, including, in some cases, Cotard syndrome. The condition linked to the medication comes on suddenly and thankfully tends to subside within a day or so. According to the 2013 piece for New Scientist, quote, One woman with renal failure began using acyclovir to treat shingles. She ran into a hospital screaming. After an hour of dialysis, she started to talk. She said the reason she was so anxious was that she had a strong feeling she was dead. After a few more hours of dialysis, she said, I'm not quite sure whether I'm dead anymore, but I'm still feeling very strange. Four hours later... I'm pretty sure I'm not dead anymore, but my left arm is definitely not mine. Within 24 hours, the symptoms had disappeared, end quote. What they think happens is that the body reacts to a product in the medicine called CMMG, which is a naturally occurring thing in the blood. Honestly, I can't figure out if it's a protein or what. It's just something in the blood. I'm no doctor, okay? But when delivered by the medicine, it's in much higher levels, and they think it restricts the arteries that bring blood to the brain. So essentially, I guess, it produces the same effect that certain kinds of brain damage does. The good news about this is, A, there are plenty of other herpes meds you can buy that presumably won't give you brain damage, and B, it gives scientists a possible in for finding a way to curb Cotard syndrome. If they can stop the restricted blood flow to the brain, maybe they can ease the symptoms. That said, I don't think I've ever heard believing you might be dead listed as one of the symptoms in any herpes medication commercial. Have you? As for treatment, thankfully, psychiatry has come a long way since the days of Mademoiselle X when people were basically tucked away in dreadful asylums and exposed to God knows what kind of torture in the name of science. These days, there are specific names for specific ailments. Gone are the days when two women, one of whom might have had Cotard syndrome and the other who might have just not been interested in having sex with her husband, say, would both be diagnosed as hysterics and dumped in a padded cell. 
Now, when a person presents with symptoms of cotards, there are a bevy of psychiatric medications, various kinds of therapy, or even just the option of taking a different medication for their herpes. Whereas a woman who isn't interested in having sex with her husband has myriad options at her disposal, none of which should be getting labeled crazy. Electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, is still being used to help target certain areas of the brain affected by the syndrome. But there again, we've come a long way from the mid-20th century when people were getting so much ECT they were basically frying their personalities away. As rare as Cotard's is, it may be that one day it disappears altogether, as its underlying cause, which seems to be brain damage either from a psychiatric disorder or physical injury, can be treated and managed before delusions set in. Until then, strangers, we can take solace in the fact that should you wake up dead one day, you will eventually go back to being gratefully alive once more, because... As the terribly unfortunate stories of past victims of cotards have increasingly shown, the disease can run its course. And as long as you are one of the majority of the population who will never know the horrors of believing you are dead, take this opportunity to appreciate being alive. Eat, drink, be merry. Don't take life for granted because as any cotard syndrome patient would probably tell you, no matter what you have going on, living death is worse. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, a woman goes missing one morning in New Mexico in 1988 and never returns. Her disappearance leads to some terrifying secrets about the people meant to protect her and her community, the mysterious disappearance and cover-up of Tara Calico. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Andrea Jones-Sojola, Luther Creek, and Ryan Garcia. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you don't, don't. Follow us on Instagram, we are at SNUPod, and check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook group to join in the conversation. 